And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest mentor is Mark Andreessen. Mark is a co-founder and general partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He's an innovator and creator, one of the few to pioneer a software category used by more than a billion people and one of the few to establish multiple billion-dollar companies. Mark co-created the Mosaic Internet Browser and co-founded Netscape, which later sold to AOL for $4.2 billion. He also co-founded LoudCloud, which, as Opsware, sold to Hewlett-Packard for $1.6 billion. Mark serves on the boards of numerous Andreessen Horowitz portfolio companies, and he serves on the board of Meta. Welcome, Mark. It's great to see you. Hey, good morning, Dan. Great to see you. Um, it's been many years since I last interviewed you, and you were kind enough to fly out to beautiful Overland Park, Kansas, to uh, uh, to let me interview you in, ter- in front of my management team, because I wanted them to be exposed to an innovator like you. And I think it worked, because my last couple of years there, we were being granted an average of over two U.S. patents every business day. So uh, so thanks for, uh, for, for that encouragement. Well, Kind of going back a few years before that, kind of unlike Al Gore, I think you can honestly be called one of the founders of the internet because of the uh, Netscape Navigator browser. I was running the online services group at AT&T when we launched WorldNet in January of 1996. And I remember you know, we went from almost a standing stop to the, being the, the largest ISP in the U.S. And we got a visit from Microsoft wanting to know what it would take to replace Netscape as our default browser. What did you learn um, you know, in that experience, you know, your first startup, in terms of competing with a kind of a, a Goliath? And and how do your portfolio companies deal with it when let's say you're you're a startup or you're an early stage tech company and you're and you become very much on the radar screen of a big player? Yeah. So look, the, the advantage and disadvantage of a startup is sort of, it's sort of the same thing. It's it's that you have a blank sheet of paper um, and you can draw anything you want on that paper. Um, and you're, you're not held to any legacy. You're not held to any install base. You're not held to any, you know, traditional, you know, sort of branded entity uh, and existing customer base. And so you can, you can, you can define the future. And of course the entrepreneurs, you know, kind of, you know, the best entrepreneurs get very fired up when they have a chance to, you know, to, 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 to do that. Um, you know, the, the, the good and the bad news of being a big incumbent is, is, is also, the same thing, um, which is you're a big incumbent. Um, and so, you know, you're big, you're important, you're powerful, you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees, if you're really big, um, you've got a giant install base of customers that have, you know, very specific demands. Um, you know, you have expectations that have been set with 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 Wall Street and, and, and so forth and so on. So you've got all of the advantages of size and scale. Uh, but you also have all of the impediments to change. You have a very hard time, you know, you have a very hard time doing as, as we, uh, as we say these days, the pivot. Um, and so the way the way my partner Alex Rampel puts it is the the any any race between a, a startup and an incumbent uh, is a race for the startup to get distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. 
Um, and, and look, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's a dynamic process um, and you see all kinds of twists and turns in these markets and you see cases in which it, you know, in, in which it works and in, in which it doesn't work. Um, you know, one of the ways we think about venture capital is our job is to, our job is to fund the rebel Alliance, right. Um, use the star Wars metaphor. So we're, we're sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're launching these, you know, these tiny X-wing fighters, you know, up against the death star. Um, and the death star is whatever incumbent or, or cartel, you know, our, our companies compete with. Um, and you know, the, na- the nature of an asymmetric battle, right. It's guerrilla warfare. The nature of an asymmetric battle like that is that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the X-wing uh, fighters get shot out of the sky, but you know, when one makes it through and shoots the torpedo down the, you know, down the exhaust port. <laughs> it can have a spectacular uh, um, um, impact, um, and so that's that's a big part of the fun of of, of watching the whole thing play out. So, um, what do you look for when you listen to a pitch? You know, what are the what are the key things that that help you make your decision? Yeah, so you know what we do is very specific, right? What we do is, is specifically high tech venture capital, right? And so there's you know this this is not of course most most new business formation in, in the U.S. or in the world, but it's it's specifically high tech, um, you know, meaning that basically for for us to do something and for somebody to be in the room with us, um, we, you know, there has to be some sort of substantive reason to believe that there is a discontinuous change in, te- in technology that's happening. Right, that there's sort of something happening in the technological landscape that's providing that kind of opportunity that I just described, you know, for the for the X-wing fighter to have a chance to launch the torpedo down the exhaust port. Um, and so, 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 so that's the main. That's always the main thing we're looking for. Which is like, okay, what what actually is happening in the technology? You know, kind of deep in the substance of computer science or you know another adjacent scientific field, you know, like physics, physics or chemistry or biology, um, that actually sort of provides the setup uh, for a new company to be able to do something dramatically new and different. Um, and then we, we complement sort of that land, the technological lens or the product lens. We then couple that basically with the, the classic two other, two other factors VCs look for, um, which is one, uh, one is market, um, which is, you know, is, is there a large, is there a large market for this? If, you know, if, if you build it, um, you know, is there, um, you know, is, is there a market to support a big company? Um, and then the other is, is team. Um, and, you know, we could spend, we could, we could, we could spend this, you know, this entire show, uh, just talking about team. But of course, at the end of the day, you know, the thing that the thing that either makes these things work or doesn't is is the people. Um, and so we spend a lot of time trying to understand who the people are and, and whether they're the kinds of people who can build something great. This being Mentors Radio, um, any key points of advice you'd give to budding entrepreneurs? Yeah. So the, the best advice that I've ever received um, and that I give all the time is is it's it's both the highest substance advice I can I can uh, I can think of. And it's also the most frustrating, <laughs> which is it's actually from Steve Martin. It's a, from the comedian Steve Martin, uh, who wrote a, a, a book called uh, about how to succeed in stand up comedy called Born Standing Up. Um, it's a short book talks about how he became this you know world famous comedian. And he's, he said he's he's asked all the time. You know how how do you do it? Um, and he gives he gives an answer that at first you know sounds like a Steve Martin joke, but is actually a very very deep and profound thing. He says, "Be so good they can't ignore you." Right. So basically, right. So 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 there's so much. You know, you go on on, on the internet, and you can find all these guides about you know how to pitch investors and pitch venture capitalists and this and that and the right order of slides in the deck and all these different things. Um, and really, the fundamental thing at the end of the day is sub, sub, substance. You know, substance basically bears out. <laughs> and by the way, that you know, this is contra kind of everything you read in the press, right? So everything you read in the press is it's some combination of either these VCs are idiots and they don't really know what they're doing and they're just kind of stumbling along, um, or equivalently that the entrepreneurs are just kind of these you know innocent kids um, or, or evil kids and they're just kind of doing random things and sometimes they work. Um, and w- what we find is no, actually, the the substance basically matters like overwhelmingly, um, you know, by like a thousand x more than anything else. Um, and 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 by substance, I mean you know, as as a founder. Uh, as a builder, like, do you really, really deeply understand what you're doing, right? Are you very deeply rooted in the science and technology of what you're doing? Have you spent, you know, years training and preparing, 
you know, to be in a position to be able to build a new product and build a new company. Um, and, and, and so the, the, the big part of what we're doing, you know, especially in kind of the first, you know, kind of several hours of interaction with potential founder is really testing for, okay, how, how deep and substantive and real, you know, is this person or is this team really? Um, and, and that's the kind of thing where if we're doing our job, right, like that, you know, that, that, that is ultimately the hardest thing to fake. Um, but, but, but we think it's the most important. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Andreessen Horowitz, co-founder, Mark Andreessen. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with mentor to entrepreneurs, Mark Andreessen. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more. On any device at any time, subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So, Mark, where do you stand on kind of this dichotomy between fail fast, learn, pivot, and just never give up? Yeah, so this is sort of a thing that became very popular in Silicon Valley about 15, 20 years ago, actually coming out of the dot-com crash. Um, and it was this idea of, you sometimes hear the term the lean startup, um, but the, the the way you usually hear it is this, this concept to sort of fail fast. And, and let me, let me also, <laughs> I don't agree with it, but uh, let me start by giving the devil his due. So, um, you know, the basic the basic theory is that, you know, every every startup is an experiment, right? It's it's a, you, you have a hypothesis of the thing that you can build and whether the world wants your thing, whether you can build a business around that. And so you should be trying to prove the hypothesis as fast as possible. Um, and then if you if you falsify the hypothesis, if you if you if you figure out that's actually not true, you should you should do what 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 they call the pivot. Um, and so you should you should uh, you should change. And of course, you know, look, there there is something to that. Like it's almost tautologically right a, a good idea, which is like, why would you want to spend you know the next five years of your life, you know, kind of working hopeless, hopelessly on something that you should have been able to figure out was not going to work. Um, you know, the, the, the other side of it, which, which I agree with more is, you know, look, the, the reality of most new things, um, and this is true of everything from, you know, art to literature to music, you know, all the way through to, you know, so what we do in, in high tech and, and, and startups, um, you know, almost everything important takes time. Um, and it takes time to get the thing right, right. It, it takes time to actually build a, a breakthrough product. Um, it takes time to actually educate the world about it. It takes time to get customers to trust you. Uh, it takes time to recruit the kind of organization that you're going to need. Um, and so if you basically, you know, if you basically like the way I describe it is like the perverse version of the lean startup theory, right? Which is not what its adventure is sort of intended, but the perverse version of it is sort of permission to quit, right? And it's sort of permission to quit early in the process so that you can avoid doing all the hard work. And and, and so it's sort of giving you permission to fail in a scenario where with with more work and time, you, you very well might have succeeded. Um, and, and I would say we we we, 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 I would tend to come across more um, on, on that second thing. I think, you know, generally people quit too, too quickly. This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we're with Mark Andreessen. So, Mark, you've been on the board of Meta, I believe, about 15 years, which is an eternity in the tech world. Um, can you describe your relationship with Mark Zuckerberg and how it's evolved over time? Yeah, so I should start by saying, you know, it's, it's, Mark Zuckerberg deserves ninety nine point nine 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 percent credit for everything that he's ever done in life because he 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 did it all, you know, himself the hard way. Um, so I, I I in no way will try to claim any credit for anything here, but um, uh, since you asked, I'll I'll describe. So I, I met Mark first, sort of a classic Silicon Valley story. I met Mark shortly after he moved from Boston uh, after he. I, 
I think Andrea, I dropped out of Harvard. It's always a, a question with these guys whether they actually graduate or drop out. <laughs> but I think he actually, I think he actually dropped out, like Bill Gates before him. Um, and so, you know, he he actually he actually tried to raise money for Facebook in, in Boston, but Boston VCs were not uh, for that kind of thing, at least at that time. So he he moved to Silicon Valley. Um, and and he did what what you know the great founders do, which is he started to surround himself with the people, you know, who could kind of fill in the pieces and kind of help him come up to speed and things that he didn't yet know about. Um, and so I think by the time I met him, I think he had already gotten, you know, he had already formed a business partnership with Sean Parker, which was like his first kind of key thing um, after moving out here. And then Peter Thiel. Um, and then I think I was sort of the third, uh, you know, kind of person that he he kind of dialed in on. Um, and, you know, when we first met, he was 21, maybe. Um, and, you know, as he said, he said when I met him, he said, look, like I, I, I not only have never been a CEO before, but I've never been an employee before. <laughs> like I, I never even, you know, he, he did independent contract programming when he was in high school, but like he, he didn't even have like a job at McDonald's. Right. And so like the entire concept of management, um, you know, was just was 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 sort of brand new. So, of course, you know, what he had was he had the tiger by the tail. Right. He had a fundamental technological breakthrough. Right. That was that turned out to be very important. Um, and, you know, what, what I was able to help him a little bit with, I would say, is kind of how to then build the business around that. Um, you know, as well as my, you know, colleagues of mine, like, like, like Peter and Sean. Um, and, 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 and then I think, you know, the, you know, the rest is, the rest is probably history. Well, another person I know that you're a, a fan of is Elon Musk. I remember having a one-on-one, -on -one, it was nine years ago with him in his office, the Tesla factory in Fremont, you know, it's the big top floor and he's back in the corner in kind of this open, open office space and kind of CEO to CEO. I said, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time just managing one company. Uh, and, uh, you know, how do you manage two? Because he had, of course, SpaceX and Tesla. And he told me, he goes, you know, um, I think before long, I'll be in a position where I can recruit a CEO at Tesla and then focus all my time on SpaceX. And of course, flash forward nine years, he not only has those two, he has Twitter. He just announced what XAI, um, boring. Uh, he's got other projects like Neuralink. You know, do you think no matter how capable that a leader can be spread too thin? Yeah, it's really hard. Sometimes founders ask me this because they're like, well, if Elon can do it, why can't I do it? You know, why can't I go start another company on the side? And I'm like, well, <laughs> step one, like, let's both look in the mirror. Do either one of us look like Elon Musk? Right. <laughs> like, like, you know, but it's like Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs was able to do, uh, you know, Apple and, and Pixar. Of course, the detail there was Apple. You know, he had a he had a management team, actually at both companies. But in particular, you know, he had a team at uh, at Pixar. And the form of Ed, Ed Catmull and Larry Levy and a, a group of people over there that, you know, that, that basically ran, ran Pixar. Um, you know, Elon's very involved in all of his companies, but he has very sharp, you know, kind of people in senior positions, um, you know, at all of them. Um, you know, so it's like it's so it's like, yeah, so I, I don't know. Look, if you're Elon and you can build, you know, the world defining electric car company, maybe on the side, you can build the world defining rocket company. Um, you know, I think most most of us can't do probably either one of those things. So I think we need to be a little bit more humble. Um, I would also say Elon's method of management um, is very different than um, most CEOs I've ever worked with, including really great CEOs. Um, and so I would say he he just he runs in a fundamentally different mode, um, which has a very different set of trade-offs um, than I think most CEOs are willing to tolerate. Um, and I, I will be honest, like I don't, I, I actually struggle. Like I think a big open question I have is should more people, should more CEOs be actually running their companies the way that Elon does? And I actually, I actually don't think I have a good answer to that because it's so different and I'm not sure how many more, I'm not sure how many other people are actually capable of doing it. Hmm. So I'd like to switch gears to a subject that nobody's talking about. And that's artificial intelligence. 
Um, you know, you said that AI can save the world. And talking about Elon, I think he said that, you know, he thinks AI might destroy civilization. Um, where do you basically agree with or disagree, let's say, with there's a lot of smart people out there that that are more fearful of AI than than you are? You know, why is that? Yeah, so I think culturally, I think we've just kind of all gone into a defensive crouch um, on a lot of different, you know, sort of areas of technology. And the, you, you can see that actually quite clearly in the economic statistics, which is, right, economists measure technological change in the economy and in the world through a metric they call productivity. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of the annual growth rate of productivity. And then, you know, quite literally, productivity is being able to produce more with less. Um, and so it's sort of this direct measure of, of technological progress. Um, and productivity growth was much faster from the 1940s through the 1970s um, and probably going back to the 1920s as well um, than it has been basically since the 1960s. And so the the and this is sort of the stagnation thesis, right, that, you'll, that, that Peter Thiel and others have talked about, which is like there, there's something in the cultural air that basically has us in a defensive crouch. Like we don't reflexively like new ideas. We look to the downside more than we look to the upside. Um, you know, I, I just think we need to take more of a historical view on this. Uh, you know, I think the last, you know, we, we, we try to draw certain conclusions from like, you know, nuclear technology or something from the last 50 years or even the internet. But I think we need to look back, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. I mean, to say, you know, things like the invention of the compass, you know, really changed the world. The invention of paper, mm -hmm. you know, really changed the world. The invention of gunpowder <laughs> really changed the world. The printing press really changed the world. And then, you know, later on, electricity, steam power, um, right, uh, you know, automobiles, radio, television. Um, and if you go back and you look at the history, like when those innovations, you know, were, were kind of first proposed, there were always people at the time who said this is a bad idea and we shouldn't do this. Um, but we would all hate today living in a world in which the naysayers had won out. Um, and in basically every case of new technology that I'm aware of, the positive gains have overwhelmed the negatives. Um, you know, by the way, even for things like gunpowder, right, which is actually a fairly uh, and, and also uh, also for nuclear technology. Um, and so I just think like history shows pretty clearly um, that advancing technology leads to progress, uh, leads to human flourishing, um, actually leads to higher levels of peace, um, lower levels, low, lower levels of conflict, um, you know, higher standards of living, higher uh, standards of health outcomes, you know, better lives for children. Um, and so I, I into these new things because the positives overwhelm the negatives. And I'm, I'm very confident that that's true for AI. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Mark Andreessen. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcasts anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco 860, The Answer. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentor's Radio Show. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I am with legendary tech investor Mark Andreessen. So I think, you know, Mark, I've heard you say that kind of more intelligence is always better than um, than less. Uh, it was interesting. I was watching uh, Wimbledon in the men's final, and the um, the three pundits all picked Djokovic to win. And then they put, this is what AI says. I think it was John McEnroe quipped, well, if the AI is correct, we're all going to lose our jobs. Um, uh, you know, if you take a look at, uh, you know, AI generated oh, art, music, um, you know, even even poetry, you know, it it's pretty good, if you will. It's not perfect and it's pretty creative. Why Why should our listeners not be worried about losing their jobs? To AI, yeah, because what technology does is sort of the recurring. There's sort of a recurring panic. There's sort of a recurring theme in history. Where there's a new technology. This actually steam power, 
This was a big concern at the time. The computer, this, this caused a huge concern at the time. I remember when pocket calculators caused this concern. And the concern always is there's just, you know, displacement effect. And of course, there, you know, there is always some displacement effect. Like there, you know, there, there used to be human beings actually called computers. That was where the term was invented. It was human beings sitting at a table doing math, right, and getting paid for it. Um, and, you know, so there is, there is a, there's a certain level of replacement, but the big thing that happens is basically the new technology becomes the superpower for the person, right? And so basically what happens is the payoff, the, the payoff of new technology is you pair the technology with the person and then the, the combination is, is, is better than, better than ever. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier this concept of productivity growth. It turns out you can measure productivity, not just the level of the economy overall, but at the level of the worker. And when you take a worker and you give them advanced technology to be able to do that function better, faster, cheaper, um, that worker makes more money, right? And so if you look at the economic statistics, the economic sectors that have a higher rate of technological change have a higher rate of productivity growth and a higher rate of both wage growth and job creation. Um, and so we, we just need to look at technology not as the enemy that somehow is going to take something away from us, but as the superpower that we're going to have to be able to make our lives better. The, the great thing about AI is this is already happening, right? So it, it's actually quite remarkable um, that the most advanced AI capabilities in the world in the form of products like ChatGPT and MidJourney um, are fully available to consumers today, right? <laughs> it was years in advance where big companies are going to even figure out what to do with these things. Like every individual on the planet today, you know, can go on Google Bard or can go on Microsoft Bing and get state-of-the-art, you know, uh, AI uh, to help them in their job. And they can get it literally from those companies. They can get it for free. Um, and so I, I think a lot of people are actually going to see a lot of wage growth uh, coming out of the other side of this. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we're talking with Mark Andreessen. So it um, it seems as though AI may be the kind of the next arms race uh, with uh, with China. Uh, do you think that regulating AI, which there's a lot of proponents for, will be almost like unilateral disarmament in terms of that race with uh, with China? And um, you know, and if so, would you support? regulations that might even perhaps impede Chinese access to key technologies like, you know, the, the, the top end chips or cloud computing, or do you think that would do more harm than good? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of people in Washington, as, as you allude to, who are, you know, kind of very concerned about all this and, and have gotten kind of whipped up, kind of gotten motions gotten whipped up around it. Um, and so I, I, what I find is I have two very different conversations with actually the same people in Washington. And it's on, on Tuesday, it's a conversation of, you know, it's basically the pure U.S. centric conversation. Right. And so it's like AI is going to hit in the U.S. and we need to regulate or not regulate or this or that. You know, all these different concerns people have, all these different restrictions people want, want to put on the technology. Uh, on Thursday, with the same people, I can have a completely different conversation, which is U.S. versus China. Um, and the conversation is completely different because, as, as you said there, it's like, OK, it's the new arms race. Right. Um, and so as a constant. And by the way, and China has been very clear in public for years about what it plans to do with AI. Um, and, and we could talk about that at, at some length. Um, but they have a very, very different vision for what AI means in the role of running their society and then kind of how the world system should work and how societies around the world should be should be um, should be controlled. Um, and so and of course, you know, also there's the potential, of course, for military conflict, um, you know, kind of omnipresent. Um, and, and, and both the American and Chinese militaries are, are, are adopting AI as fast as they possibly can. Um, and so there's a completely different conversation that has to do with the balance of power between the, the, the U.S. and China. Um, right now, I think it's a little bit 50-50. It's a little bit up in the air, kind of how, let's say, self-aware and thorough in thinking uh, people in Washington are going to be on this. Um, I hope that, you know, what I would describe as rationality prevails, which is we realize that we're not alone in the world. 
Um, and that China does have this very different and much darker vision. Um, and we have to make sure we're on our front foot on this technology and not our back foot. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, we're in a moment in time in which that's, uh, that I would describe that as very uncertain. Well, you described, or you, you mentioned earlier that consumers have early access to the technology. One of the debates is, is AI going to be more of a benefit to the huge companies or small companies? And I know that, you know, in today's environment, large companies in particular, because they have so much invested in their brands in today's environment have to be so careful about anything they say, you know, without offending someone, less companies, smaller companies, perhaps less so. And, you know, generative AI can be, you know, a bit unfiltered in nature, um, creating, you name it, ad copy, you pick whatever. As a result, do you think that AI will be more of a benefit to to big companies or potentially small companies? Yeah, so let me actually expand out your argument even more, which is I think this is a general phenomenon now with new technology that is, is also true beyond AI. And the way I would describe it is when you and I started our careers, uh, new technology would basically start at the top. It would start with governments and big companies adopting. And then over time, it would kind of trickle down to mid-sized companies and then small companies and then ultimately consumers. And the classic example of that was the computer itself, right? Started with main, super expensive mainframes, and then it took 30 years to get to the point where individual, you know, people, you know, individual private citizens could, could have PCs that were cost-effective. Um, in the last 20 years, um, that, that model of technology deployment has flipped on its head. And in the last 20 years, virtually all of the new technologies that matter have actually started out being consumer first. Um, and then they get adopted, they sort of trickle up, then they get adopted by small businesses, then mid-sized businesses, then big companies, and then later, ultimately, the government. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, you know, the internet kind of has, I think, uh, you know, the internet and smartphones are kind of the two, the, the two canonical examples of that, right? Individuals had smartphones years in advance of big companies figuring out what to do with them or whether to even allow them, mm -hmm. right? And even when the internet came out, I remember a lot of big companies just banned it right out of the gate, right? Even as, uh, as, as consumers were having a great time on it. Um, and so I think AI is kind of that idea on steroids. It's, it's this sort of uh, tr trickle up idea. And uh, so as, as a consequence, like, I think there's a really good chance that actually individuals benefit the most, uh, sort of contra all the press coverage right now, um, but yeah. just in reality, uh, people being able to use it in their daily lives. And then I think maybe small businesses actually benefit the second most and then midsize and then large companies. And so this could, there is a very real prospect here that this could really shift the balance of power in a lot of industries towards smaller companies. Um, on another subject, I see that Andreessen Horowitz recently set up shop in London because you believe, you know, the UK has a healthier regulatory environment with respect to cryptocurrency than the, than the US does. You know, given how much, you know, investors have lost, you know, issues at, you know, FTX, Celsius, Binance, what have you, you know, why should, you know, our listeners trust cryptocurrency and, and why is, you know, crypto important for the United States to have a leadership position in? Oh, so I should start by saying I'm not recommending anybody buy anything, buy anything. So don't, don't, don't view anything that I'm about to say as an as sort of endorsement of people actually deploying money because I, I don't, I don't do that. I don't, you know, recommend yep. any people buy anything in particular. But, um, but yeah, look, I, I, our thesis on crypto is completely unchanged. Um, you know, we, we talk about like, for example, can you trust these systems? It's actually really interesting. Uh, the, the the blockchain systems, Bitcoin and Ethereum and the other blockchains that operate have been operating bulletproof basically, you know, for years, in, in most cases since inception. So Bitcoin's been operating on the same code base, you know, since 2009 um, in exactly the same way. 
um, you know, the way we analyze things like FTX is those were specific frauds built on top of the technology. Um, and of course, you know, that happens. You'll, you'll remember from your experience in the telecom industry, um, <laughs> there were certain companies that I think you probably had to compete with uh, that turned out to be frauds. Um, right. Um, and so, you know, like people, people, fraudsters build frauds on top of whatever whatever the thing is. And, 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 ob and obviously that's bad. But we always think, like I said, substance matters. You need to look through to the fundamentals of the technology and the fundamentals of the technology. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're true believers 100 percent, just as much as we ever were. Um, and so we continue to invest very aggressively and, and, and we'll continue to do so. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Mark Andreessen, discussing how AI will change our lives. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with outspoken internet pioneer Mark Andreessen. Uh, Mark, you've said uh, that you believe virtual reality will be bigger than augmented reality. Can you kind of give us your vision for the for the metaverse and how it might change our lives? Yeah, so you know, <laughs> it's really funny. There's this debate in the industry, as you alluded to, that's kind of raging. So, so, so augmented reality is this idea that you'll have, you know, some sort of heads-up display. Today, it's in the form of these kind of goggles. In the future, it'll be glasses or contact lenses. Uh, it'll kind of overlay computer images on top of the real world. And Apple just announced this, you know, incredible new product, Vision Vision Pro, which which does this. Um, uh, and that's going to be amazing. Um, and then there's, you know, this other kind of related thing called virtual reality, where you also wear goggles or glasses or contacts and the idea is it sort of puts you in a new environment, right? A, a, you know, kind of a completely computer-generated environment, kind of like being inside a video game or being inside a computer-generated you know, movie. Um, and so there's this big debate in the industry about which of those is going to be bigger. And it's actually really funny. Um, the, 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 the people who think augmented reality is going to be bigger are all people who have spectacular lives in the real world today. <laughs> so I always, I always kind of tease. It's like Tim Cook is the ultimate example of this, right? Because it's like if you're Tim Cook, it's like life is freaking awesome, right? It's like you wake up in the morning and you're the CEO of Apple, and then you like you know drive to work, and it's like you work in the spaceship, right? this giant donut spaceship, and in, in Cupertino, and you've got this giant office, and you've got all this spectacular, you know, it's art everywhere, and it's just like the most amazing thing, and these incredible people are coming in to see you, and it's just like, and why would you want to go into VR and miss all that, right? But it's like okay, most people, um, you know, are, don't live like that like most most people including like you know think about like myself when i was growing up like you know don't live in you know physical environments that are super rich with lots of experience and don't have a lot of you know sort of amazing interesting people to talk to um and so i i i i do tend to think that the, you know for most people around the world the, the opportunity to kind of have a parallel life where you're in the physical world when you want to be but you have a virtual world that you can be in that gives you a range of experiences and capabilities Right um, and interactions that are just not possible in the day-to-day -day physical world. I, I think that's actually very exciting, um, and so we're, we're we're very bullish on that idea. Yeah, I think you you coined the term, or I don't know if you coined it, but you've used it: reality privilege. And it's a it uh, it, it does capture it. You know, it reminds me of um, you know I've gone to all these great churches and cathedrals, and of course have studied um, uh, you know history during that period of time with, when almost everybody was poor. And yet, you know, when they passed out the collection basket every, you know, every Sunday, they'd give whatever they had because it was, in effect, an escape from reality. I mean, they, they didn't have the palace, so they could see gold and silver and ivory and stained glass and listen to nice organs. It was, you know, it was uh, um, really was almost a um, a different reality than their day to day life. It's an, And I was actually in today's journal. Um, there was a. Um, 
oh, uh, uh, I want to say Remini. Uh, there's an article which is where people can can dream, can have pictures of themselves with children and babies and things like that that don't exist in the real world. And how popular mm-hmm. it's one of the most popular apps uh, right now on um, you know on, on the internet. So uh, let me change course again. So how do you define success? So <laughs> there's a lot of ways to define success. Um, I'm kind of a believer that you break it down into what you know psychologists call extrinsic versus intrinsic, right? And so uh, extrinsic signs of success, right, are things that you know other people can see, right? So it's material, you know, material wealth. Um, you know, it's it's the big house, it's the fast car, you know, it's 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 all of the things you know that you can kind of show off. Um, and then intrinsic success are the things that are inside, right? And so it's it's your own sense of satisfaction, your own sense of, of freedom and independence. Um, you know, your own sense of sort of capability and power. Um, uh, also, by the way, it's, you know, your relationships with other people, you know, your, your ability to be a mentor, to be a friend, uh, you know, a coach, a supporter. Um, you know, a lot of people I work with, I would say they go on an arc through their life where when they start out, they're very motivated by the extrinsic forms of success. And then mm-hmm. as they as they achieve those things, what they discover is the, those actually aren't ultimately the things that matter as much. And then they, they in, the, in their later decades, I, I find they tend to reorient themselves around the the side of the, the sort of more uh, the more internal uh, uh, aspects of it. Yeah, and, and I think you're even noticing it in companies as culturally they're focusing more on things like purpose, you know, things that they think are even more motivating perhaps than just, you know, stock options and cash and and, and what have you alone, some other things that are that that bring more meaning to life. Um, so how would you define happiness? Yeah, so I think happiness, I read this book a while back called Satisfaction by this guy, Gregory Burns, that kind of really changed my life. And he, he makes this argument in the book that's sort of as follows, which is like happiness is, happiness is kind of, it's a little bit of a mirage, right? So the way to think about it is what, what's happiness, right? Uh, it's, a, you know, an ice cream cone on a hot day. You know, it's a walk, you know, it's a walk through the, through the forest. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's uh, time spent, you know, hugging, hugging a loved one. And it's like, at any given day, like the first of those is like really wonderful, but the thousandth of those... <laughs> It starts to become a problem, right? Like you don't actually want a thousand ice cream cones or necessarily a thousand hugs, right? Uh, or a thousand walks through the forest, right? You, you, so, so, so there's this kind of fleeting sort of idea of happiness. And, and a lot of people, by the way, get those things and then they're still not satisfied and they don't know what the problem is. And so what, what this book basically says is actually instead of happiness, we should orient towards satisfaction. And, and satisfaction is a, is, a, is a deeper phenomenon. You know, it's sort of a phenomenon of fulfillment, right? It's a phenomenon. It's you know, it's a phenomenon that you experience when it's like you know, pride in a job well done, right? Or it's like looking back and realizing that you've mentored somebody who's now been incredibly successful. Or it's like looking, you know, basically in you know, in the out years at your grandkids and being like, wow, I've like built, a, you know, I, I I put in forty years and I built this amazing family. Um, and so I, I I think probably satisfaction is the ultimate goal. Well, way more than happiness. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, the visionary Mark Andreessen. You will find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Mark Andreessen discussing how technology will continue to improve our lives. So, Mark, you know, leadership is one of the subjects that we've talked about on this on this podcast uh, in the past. And, you know, Socrates didn't write things down, but I'm very happy that his student Plato did because I was very much a, a student of his. As a matter of fact, Plato's Republic kind of shaped my idea of what 
ideal leadership is. You know, um, it's all about being the most just person, the most virtuous person. That leadership is a is a privilege. Uh, that a just leader is intelligent, continues to learn, um, is more concerned with their subjects than they are with themselves, is a team builder, brings together at the time the aristocracy, workers, the military, all together for the common good. He wasn't a big fan of democracy. He was more kind of the philosopher king. You know, my ideal would probably be kind of the philosopher president. I like I like um, the idea of someone with those qualities, but uh, but but being elected. You know, I also have listened to, you know, you've talked about, uh, you know, reading James Burnham's works and his observations. And if I think about kind of the two pillars of our society, they're really kind of capitalism and democracy. And, you know, and you tell me if I've got it right, but, you know, he says democracy, you know, isn't working as well as it should because it's kind of run by elites Capitalism isn't running as as well as it should be because you've got this managerial class who is dancing to a different drummer uh, than, let's say, the owners, uh, and not necessarily working um, on be on behalf of the owners. Given those are the kind of the two key pillars of we'll call it the success of our society. You know, what's what's your take on on democracy and capitalism, and where you see them going? Yeah, so let's, let's uh, just on, uh, on capitalism. So, um, so the, the Burnham book you're referencing is called The Managerial Revolution, and it's something I definitely a book I recommend that everybody read. And he he describes two different kinds of capitalism in the book. He describes bourgeois capitalism as the traditional model, which you could think of as sort of single proprietorship, name on the door. I own the company, I run the company. Um, and then he describes managerial uh, capitalism as sort of the modern, you know, kind of public corporation where you've got you know executive team, board of directors, shareholders. Um, and you have this kind of layer of indirection, right, between the people who own the company and the people who run and, and, and work at the company. Um, now, very importantly, he said managerial capitalism is sort of inevitable. He, he said, it, you know, you could you could call it good or bad or have judgments on it. But he said it is inevitable because these companies, these industries in the modern world get so big that you do you do need this kind of intermediating layer of, of, of managers. And you look at our society today and it's like almost everything from the government to companies to foundations, you know, are, are run by these intermediate uh, managers. Um, the, the way I think about the startup world and the world of entrepreneurship is we are always trying to bring back the older model of, you know, the name of the door. I own the company. I run the company, you know, kind of more, more of the philosopher King model that you alluded to. Um, and the, the, the advantage of that, of that older model, you know, think kind of Henry Ford as an example, right. Or, or in the modern world, Elon Musk, um, is that, you know, when somebody owns and controls their own company, they can do the things that they think are important, whether, you know, this sort of large class of managers thinks it's a good idea or not. And the, and the, the, the most important of those things is they can build new things. Um, and so I, I, I view the capitalistic system we're in today as sort of a hybrid of these two. It's mostly managerial, but because of the effort of startups and startup innovators and entrepreneurs throughout the economy, we keep bringing back this older model. And that's actually what keeps the economy healthy. So today we talked about, you know, AI, crypto, the metaverse. What other big technology trends, Mark, do you think we should be paying attention to? Yeah, so AI is going to play out across many sectors of the economy. and It's going to intersect with almost everything. And, and you know, probably the single most exciting area of uh, development in the next you know 20 years is probably going to be the combination of biotech and AI um, combining, right? And so the ability to have, you know, with, with biotech technology, gather up a huge amount of information about how the human body works, uh, being able to then have that analyzed by AI and then have AI develop right, new therapies, right, or new vaccines, um, I think is going to be, you know, monumentally important. 
Um, and so, you know, with, with a little bit of luck, we, we are in for an improvement of the quality of life of people around the world, you know, as measured by their, their physical health, you know, the, the, you know, hopefully over the next 20 years, that will be, you know, leaps and beyond leaps and bounds beyond even the medicine that we have today. So, um, I read that you actually think it might be a good idea for there to be a cage match between <laughs> Elon and Mark. Yes. <laughs> Yes, one hundred percent. I am very much in favor. Um, yeah, so picture, picture. This is all this is all public reporting. And there's no inside information here. You know, picture, picture a uh, fight. You know, later this year, uh, mixed martial arts uh, combination of boxing and wrestling. Uh, you know, like UFC. But uh, you know, picture Mark and and, uh, and Elon both fully trained. Um, and then picture it. You know, being a major event. Um, you know, I, hypothetically at the at the MGM Sphere, for example. Um, and then you know, hypothetically, it raises a billion dollars for charity. Uh, I think that would be. Uh, I think that would be spectacular on every front. Uh, very cool. Well, thanks for joining us today, Mark. I appreciate kind of the valuable guidance you gave for the entrepreneurs that are listening and for your clear articulation of why we should embrace and adapt to new technology instead of trying to stymie it. To our listeners, please go to the mentorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us online on any device at any time on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of the Mentors Radio. And until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.thementorsradio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.